This podcast contains adult language and content. The stories in this show can be frightening and disturbing for some. Listener discretion is advised. If you have a story to share, send it to letsnotmeetstories at gmail.com. Enjoy the show. My name is Andrew Tate, and this is Season 7, Episode 4 of Let's Not Meet, a true horror podcast. Welcome to another edition of The Lost Stories. These are recordings from the original preseason run of the show. And remember, the recording quality is ancient and will vary from story to story with a splash of music and sound effects here and there. But they still gave me the creeps, and I'm the guy who reads these submissions every single day. But without any further ado, enjoy the show. This story is one of the most terrifying experiences that I've ever had in my life. I live in a small city in a small country in the South Pacific. While there is definitely weird shit that goes on in my country, such as hitchhikers being murdered and gangs, etc., it's nothing like some of the strange backwater towns of America and is generally considered to be a safe place. I am a female And this happened to me last year when I was 24. I sometimes go for walks late at night when I can't sleep, and as I live in an apartment in the middle of town, I walk in areas that are very well populated in the day and weekends, but deserted on weeknights. One night, I was feeling particularly down in the dumps and couldn't sleep, so I decided to go for a walk. I walked up a long, empty street, and then around the block, and made my way back down one of the busiest streets during the day, but being around 2 a.m., it was dead. Even though it was brightly lit, it still had an eerie feeling of emptiness. When I was a few blocks away from my apartment, I saw a guy standing on the footpath ahead. It was nothing unusual, but he looked at me as I approached and wanted to talk with me. As I passed him, he handed me a pamphlet, and being the overly polite person that I am, I took it. As I walked away, I looked at the pamphlet and I saw that it was some kind of Christian thing, which was talking about sinners and hell. It was weird that this guy was out at this time of night handing out pamphlets, but I just thought whatever and continued on my way. I got to one of the busiest intersections in the city where five streets meet. I pressed the button waiting for the signal to go green so I could cross. There wasn't any traffic, but I also wasn't in a hurry, and due to racing cars which sped through the city at night, I decided to wait for the signal. As I was waiting, suddenly pamphlet guy was standing next to me grinning. He said, hi, what's your name? Can I walk you home? Where do you live? I ignored him as I waited, starting to feel uneasy. Just as the signal went green, my phone rang. It was my sister calling from Switzerland. She must have got the time zones mixed up, 
to be calling me at this time, but I happily answered. I crossed the road while I was talking to my sister and got completely engrossed in the story she was telling me, to the point where I briefly forgot about the guy. Part of the way down the road, I looked over my shoulder and saw that the guy was walking behind me a little ways back, and I started getting quite nervous. I told my sister what was happening, while telling myself I was being paranoid. I got to the front door of my apartment building and saw that the door was standing open. There was a restaurant in the building and the employees sometimes leave the door open when they're sorting out the rubbish at the end of the night, which is actually against the rules of the body corporate. I pressed the button to the lift, and just as I got in and turned around, I saw that the guy had come through the open door and was sprinting towards the lift. The door closed just as he was reaching the lift while I repeatedly pressed the button to close the doors, silently panicking. Despite the fact that I could hear the button outside of the lift being hurriedly pounded on, the lift thankfully lurched upwards and a huge wave of relief just washed over me. I told my sister what was happening and she said to hurry to my apartment and lock the door. The lift stopped at my level, which was the third story, and I got out and walked to my door. I fumbled around with my keys as my hands were just shaking. Just when I got them out, the door which leads to the stairs swung open. It was the pamphlet guy. He must have seen which floor the lift stopped at and ran up the stairs to my level. I jammed my key into the lock and shoved my way inside, but before I could get the door closed, he stuck his foot between the door and the door frame. I screamed and pushed as hard as I could, slamming the door. After several slams, he pulled his foot out and I managed to close and lock the door, putting on the chain. It was then that I realized, in my panic, I had left the key in the door on the outside. I watched through the peephole and saw him look down and take the key out of the door. Then he stared at the peephole with the creepy, twisted smile on his face. Even though I knew he couldn't see me. It felt like his gaze was boring a hole straight into my mind. I was so scared that I froze with my sister still on the other end of the phone, which was now lying on the floor. My heart was pounding faster and harder than I've ever felt it before, and I could hear a rushing noise which seemed like it came from inside my head. After what seemed like 10 minutes, even though it was probably around one, he turned and walked to the door to the stairs. As he opened the door, he turned back, looking straight at me as he held up the key, swinging it back and forth, grinning, then disappearing through the door. I started crying and picked up the phone, explaining what had happened to my very worried sister. She told me to call my mom and that I should stay with her for the night, so I did. Of course, the next day I got the locks changed, but I'm still terrified that he'll come back and he'll try the key. I'm now much less naive and have stopped going out for late night walks. So creepy Christian pamphlet man, let's not meet. This is a precautionary tale. 
I understand that this was my fault, but maybe if I can help one person by telling my story, it's worth it. I don't drink as a general rule, but once a month or so, I will go out with friends and binge. My friends and I had a great night at the bar in the city. Then they left. I was chatting it up with the cute guy, and I decided to stay. I went back to his place. After a while, I'm ready to head home, so I call an Uber to pick me up. I don't know where I am. I know the city, but not my exact location. I order the Uber, but it's taking forever. Requesting, requesting, requesting. It just keeps saying requesting, so I cancel and try again. Pretty soon, a car pulls up. I drunkenly mumble something like, Is this the Uber? And I hop in. This was a mistake. Ubers, apparently, are supposed to have some kind of marking on the vehicle. The guy pulls away and starts driving. We start chatting. I'm bumbling for a cigarette, and the next thing I notice is that we're headed on the highway, but in the opposite direction of where I thought we needed to drive. And we're going a solid 90 miles per hour. Then I get a call from the Uber driver. He's there, and I'm not. Because I'm in the car with a fucking nutcase. I start texting my friend frantically, counting off mile markers for her. Then I realize that that's going to do Jack because she's probably drunk too. So I call 911, but I realize that this guy is actually crazy. He's refusing to let me out of the car, so I've got to do it on the sly. It's been about 40 minutes by now. I'm terrified. I don't know where I am, and I I don't know who this is. We're driving now at over 100 miles per hour, weaving in and out of traffic. The guy is trying to get me to hang up on my phone call. He says, yo, get off the phone. Who the fuck are you calling? Better not be a snitch. He's also smoking pot, so I don't want to do anything that might provoke a violent reaction from him. I start chatting to the 911 dispatcher as if it's my friend, praying that they'll catch on. Hey girl, it's me. Yeah, I'm with someone right now. We're driving past this highway exit. No, sweetie, it's not my Uber. I thought it was, but it's not. It's a shame you can't come and meet me and bring friends. Sweet baby Jesus, the operator catches on. He gets me to stay on the phone while he sends cops, and we develop a code. If I see cops, I'm supposed to casually put my hand out the window, which looks semi-normal because I'm smoking a cigarette. We pull into some random little housing complex, and he busts out some powder and forms two lines. I now have confirmation that he does drugs, which means he's probably emotionally volatile. I relay this to the operator in code, which translates, Oh girl, I wish you were right here, right now. This guy busted out the coke. You'd love it. He's taking a really big bump. Man after your own heart, etc. Pretty soon, I can see the lights of the cop cars, so I start waving my hand out the window. At this point, I don't care if he's on to me or not. 
I don't know if he has a weapon, but I slump down in my seat just in case things get hot. The cops first surround us, then get him out of the car, and finally they extricate me as well. They whisk me to the hospital for a drug test and evaluation, and that's where my story ends. On the way to the hospital, as I'm explaining this to the officer, I find out that of the guy's 40-ish years here on Earth, he's been in federal prison for 30 of them for violent offenses. I want people to learn from my mistakes, and if nothing else, call 911 and stay on the line. So let's not meet. When I was six years old, my favorite thing to do was explore the woods by my house. I never went into the thicket alone. My best friend Ethan liked to join me. But sometimes it would be just me and my neighbor, Katrina, who was seven at this time. To get to the woodsy area, you had to first cross a large tree fallen over a small ravine. Something I would never do now, but at that age I was fearless. My friend and I spent many days daring each other to cross back and forth over the tree without using our arms for balance. One particularly dreary summer day, I asked Ethan and Katrina to explore with me, but Ethan wasn't feeling too well, so he stayed home. Katrina and I set off the obscure path that led to the fallen tree and spent a couple of hours in the woods. I remember the smell of the woods and the damp, slippery feel of the leaves beneath my feet. It had rained the night before and the woods were electric with the sounds of birds chirping and water rushing through the ravine. We were so entranced. I guess that's why we didn't hear the man approach us. My first thought was to get the hell out of there. I knew about stranger danger and I just had this weird feeling about the middle-aged man. Before I could tell Katrina what I was thinking, the man told us we looked like we were great explorers and that he could really use our help. He said that his puppy ran off into the woods and she wouldn't be able to care for herself, so it was really important to find her soon. I hesitated, but Katrina had always had a weakness for puppies, so she agreed to help him look. We set out to look for the missing puppy, but I just kept getting this weird feeling. Every time we walked towards the direction the man came from, he would tell us that he already looked over there and that we should keep looking to the other side. By that time, I was done. I was ready to nope the fuck out of there, but Katrina would not budge. I told her I was leaving, and she said that she was going to stay. I wanted to beg her to come with me, but I decided to leave without her because I couldn't stand being there any longer. I jogged back through the woods, careful not to slip on any damp leaves, but the fallen tree was covered in them, so I had to tiptoe my way across. Halfway across, a chill went through my body, leaving a trail of goosebumps on my skin, and I ran. I ran so fast I forgot how slippery the log was. So I didn't even realize I was falling into the ravine until I had already hit the rocky bottom. 
I heard a loud crack, and I looked down to see that my femur was broken and sticking through my skin. Things got foggy after that, but I guess I screamed so loud for the closest neighbors to call 911. I'm just happy I screamed loud enough to save Katrina. The police and the EMTs found me lying in the ravine, crying and gasping at my broken leg. The last thing I remember, I was pointing towards the woods and telling them to look for Katrina. I woke up the next day with my leg hooked up to the ceiling in traction in a world of pain. My mom was holding my hand and she said that when I was ready, the police would like to talk with me. I asked if I was in trouble, but she said it was nothing like that. They just needed to ask me a few questions. The policeman came in and asked me if I had seen a man in the woods before I broke my leg. I recounted the events that had happened and asked if they found Katrina, and they had. When I left, the man started asking Katrina about her family and if she had any big scary brothers that would come looking for her if she were out too late. Their conversation was cut short by my screams, and Katrina immediately ran towards the sound. Luckily, the man's reflexes weren't as fast, and even though he tried, he never caught up with her. She said when she looked around at the end of the woods, he was running back into them. She thought maybe he was going to get help, but it turns out there was no lost puppy. The police never found the creepy man, but they did find a bag hidden in the bushes by where they first spotted him. Inside the bag, there was some rope, duct tape, and a pair of binoculars. When asked about Katrina today, and if they still keep in touch, the author did say she's doing well, and they were both finishing up college now and that she has since moved into her own apartment, and we only live about 10 minutes away from each other. She had nightmares too after everything, but not until a couple years later because she was so trusting and she never really thought the guy would hurt us until she found out about his bag of supplies. She always seen the best in people and had been an optimist, while I am the complete opposite, which is, why we are always happy to have each other as friends. So, creepy man in the woods, let's not meet. I'm a 23-year-old female from the UK. This happened when I was 17, and I still remember it like it was yesterday. It was January the 2nd, 2012. My boyfriend and I had just parted ways for the night. I was three miles away from my home, and the only way towards it was down a long, dimly lit road. Houses adorned on one side, while pubs and businesses were present on the other. It was around 7.30pm, and being winter, it was extremely dark. My mother had warned me against walking down that road on my own, but against my better judgment... I decided to walk down that street. About five minutes into my walking, I could hear someone or something through the music as I was listening to my earphones. I looked behind me to see a man wearing his hood up and a baseball cap on, dressed mostly in dark colors, doing something kind of like a 
jog or walk type deal to catch up with me. Immediately I panic, as I don't like strangers at the best of times, and I'm very awkward. I quickly take my earphones out and tuck them into my pocket, unsure of this man's intentions. He catches up to me and begins walking alongside me. Hey, he says. I don't answer, and I don't even acknowledge him. Hey, I saw you walking up there, he says. He then asks, Hey, how are you? Clearly not getting the hint that I was to be left alone. In reply, I said, Good, thanks. I am on my way home. I pick up my pace slightly, trying to make it obvious that I do not want to talk. He asks, What's your name? Again, being on high alert, I give him a fake name. Charlotte. Charlotte. That's a nice name. I get this creepy vibe from him, sneaking a quick look. I see this guy has a ton of facial scars and his eyes are practically bulging out of his sockets. So what's your name? I ask, feigning politeness and trying not to show my fear. The boys call me Doctor. I ask, Doctor? He replies, That's me. Speaking of boys, would you like to come and meet my friends? Panicking more now, I reply, "Uh, No, I've got to go home. I keep walking, cursing at myself inside my mind. If only I had listened to my mother. Why did I walk down this road? Come with me, he said, slightly pulling on my jacket arm. What do you mean? What for? The fear now breaking out of my voice. He replies, I need a favor. What favor? Then he asks me for a blowjob. And I'm freaking out at this point. I felt numb all over, and although I had a phone on me, I I couldn't discreetly call 999, as I didn't know if this guy had a knife or a weapon. His crazed expression would have been enough to put anyone on edge. I reply to this creep, Listen, I don't like that kind of stuff, doctor. He begins to get a little more persistent, saying that he hasn't had a woman in such a long time, pulling out my jacket arm with more force than he did before. He attempted to nudge me towards a dark, empty parking lot. I continued walking as fast as I possibly could, to which he was telling me to slow down and that he doesn't know anyone who walks that fast. He had to jog to keep pace. I finally reached the town, which was two miles from my home, but no way was I leading this guy back to my house, so I decided to go to the local supermarket. I could have cried with happiness being that there were people all around, but this guy was still latched to my side, now staying deathly silent since we were both in the public eye. Instead of acting like a normal person and asking for help, I panicked and decided to go to the restroom. A stupid move, I know. In hindsight, I would have immediately told someone of my predicament, but I was 17 at the time and being extremely scared caused me to make that one mistake. I head into the restroom, which to me was a safe haven until he followed me into the toilets. That's when he grabbed me by my arm. He kicked open one of the stall doors and growled, Get in! Through my tears, I told him, I don't do that! He again growled, Get in! In a more furious tone before tugging at my arm. And then miraculously, one of the shop's employees had been using one of the stalls. She came out and sees a male in the woman's toilets and immediately tells him, You cannot be in here. This is the women's bathroom. He looks shocked, 
as he looks to me, then back to the woman, then back to me. He then tells me, I'll be waiting outside for you, Charlotte, and quickly takes his leave, giving one last foul glance over his shoulder before the restroom door swings shut. At that moment, my legs buckle from underneath me and I start sobbing my heart out. The employee asked me if I was okay, to which I told her about the ordeal I had endured for the past half hour. I told her how I didn't have any idea who this man was and that he had just begun to follow me. She then told me to get into one of the stalls and lock it, and don't open it until it was another employee. In the five minutes that I was in the stall, my mind raced. I had never felt so vulnerable in my life. My heart was still beating hard. My legs were like jello. I was emotionally and mentally spent. I was fully expecting the door to be kicked open by doctor, but it never happened. Instead, the door knocked. It was an employee informing me that the police were on the way. She then guided me to the cafe where they gave me a free drink to settle my nerves. I felt like a little kid again, in a world full of adults, explaining my story again to which the three people on staff couldn't believe how brave I was. One of the women commenting on the fact that you wouldn't expect it to happen to someone as well-dressed as I was. After all, I was never one for skirts or heels. I favored baggy jeans and Converse sneakers. Before long, I felt someone grip my shoulder. It was him again. Are you coming, Charlotte? I didn't look at him. I didn't talk to him. I froze. I just sat there, looking at the staff in desperation. Are you coming, Charlotte? That's when a very burly security guard escorted him back outside. One staff member kept talking while a few more were watching him on CCTV. The creep had been standing outside waiting for me for about half an hour. After 45 minutes, the police arrive, and they give me a ride home. I had to give a statement in front of my mother, who was both horrified but at the same time very matter-of-fact-serves-you-right type attitude. For weeks, I had to go to and from the police station to give more in-depth statements, one being recorded on tape. Another time, I had to try and identify doctor through pictures of sex offenders, but alas, the doctor was never caught. I can't even imagine what could have happened to me if that woman wasn't in the stall that night, or if I didn't have any more common sense to go to a brightly lit public place. One thing is for certain, I never, ever walk down that road anymore, and if I'm out in the dark... I always have someone with me as I cannot make it 50 feet without feeling uneasy that someone may be following me. I carry pepper spray at all times, even though it's classified as an offensive weapon and is illegal to carry around in the UK. I won't be making that same mistake twice. Fun fall day turns to night. What do we do now? Now me and my friends live in this extremely boring little town that really on all occasions there's nothing to do at any time ever. All we have is this little piece of shit theater and a rundown skating rink for fun. Everyone in our town has heard of the legend of Old Foamy and we decided to look into it. 
Pretty much the whole gist of things is to park on this fairly thin bridge called Old Foamy in the middle of the night, shut off your car, then honk three times. Many bodies have in fact been found mangled and torn or murdered around that area. So that just fueled the fire. Oh yeah, the windows should be rolled down too. Piece of cake, right? Wrong. After doing said ritual, the beast labeled Old Thummy is supposed to appear, then smash the top of your car or throw dead animals at you. Oh, and before he comes, the car fails to start. So me and four others pile into my little car and we head off. We arrive there thinking no goat man would ever appear, stopped, put the car into park, rolled down the windows, and honked three times. Then silence. No insects chirping, nor wind, nor footsteps. It was fall, by the way. We'd hear stuff going down. While waiting, we hear a crunch in the leaves to our left. I put my hand on the keys, preparing to start the car, just in case. Then we hear rustling to the right. While being completely distracted, we look up, and I happen to catch in the rear view a figure, a person, but in the most fucked up mask I had ever seen. Not that it was gory, but a fucking cow skull. Instantaneously, I try and start the car. To my luck, warning lights come on and it starts beeping. My power windows wouldn't even work. As well as screaming many vulgarities and trying to get my car started, little did I notice the figure moved closer. So close, I bet he could touch the back of my car. Whilst hearing more rustling in the woods and everyone in the car completely flipping out all kinds, I finally get the car to start, put it into drive, and get the hell out of there. But as we were pulling away, there were more to the sides of us. Three on the left that I saw, and Chris said he saw two more on the right. All with hoods, except Mr. Cowskull behind. All staring and waiting as we hauled out of there. Later we found out that there was more behind that place than a seven-foot goat man. Apparently the area is known for satanic rituals and other cult-like actions to occur. If we would have known that, we would have never thought to go there. That was truly the scariest night of my life. And I will never, ever do that again. Glad they didn't screw us over. Let's not meet. During my freshman and sophomore years of college, I was extremely awkward. I had just come out as gay, I didn't have any friends, and I was generally kind of a big wad of social anxiety. Given that I didn't even have the social skills to make a few friends, it's not surprising that I also literally had no dating experience. Miraculously, over the course of the summer after sophomore year, I just sort of grew out of the worst of my awkwardness. I lost some weight, had a lot more confidence in myself, and my self-esteem was a lot higher. I came back to school in August, and by October, I had a decent number of genuine friends and had gotten a lot more involved on campus. With my newfound confidence, I decided to finally download Grindr and see what it was like. For anyone who doesn't know, Grindr is a gay dating app that is primarily used for finding sex and hookups. Despite my recent improvement in the social arena, 
I was still extremely naive and inexperienced when it came to dating and sex. I set up my Grindr profile with a nice picture of myself and a very brief bio, and I got a lot of messages very quickly after my picture got approved. One guy who messaged me had the name dad for young which should have been my first red flag, but I was oblivious. I should note that I look really young for my age. At the time, I was 21, but I was regularly asked on campus staff which middle school or high school I was visiting from. I'm now 23 and still get asked if I want a kid's menu if I go to a restaurant with my parents. It's bad. So, Dad for Young sends me a message that says, What's up? and I reply without looking at his profile first. I then look at his profile and notice he's 54. His only profile text says, The younger the better. And his only picture was a zoomed-in, blurry picture of a hairy chest. So I was very much not interested. But given my inexperience, I thought ignoring him would probably be horribly rude. So I kept responding. I don't totally remember what we talked about in the maybe 10 or so messages we exchanged at first, but I remember him telling me I was very cute. I know I told him I was a student, but I never mentioned which college I went to. It's important to note that I went to college in a major city, and there's a bunch of different colleges within like five miles of each other, and a few more within 10 miles of those. Sort of like Tinder, Grinder works based off of your location, but much more precisely. If you're less than a mile or two away from someone who's online, it will display the distance in feet. I noticed that Dad for Young's profile said he was 25 miles away, which I thought was kind of far. Dad for Young started getting more sexual in his chats and asked if I wanted to meet up. I felt bad flat out denying him since he had been polite so I told him I didn't want to meet up with him that day, but we could keep chatting if he wanted. I figured that was that, and when I checked 20 minutes later, it said he was offline. About 30 minutes after that, I get another message from him. Hey, I got a wild hair, and I thought I'd take a nice drive out to your college. With a smiley face. I had not told him the name of my college, nor had I told him what part of town I was in. I looked at his profile and it said he was now three miles away. I started freaking out a little and didn't reply to his messages in hopes that he'd just leave me alone. It's important to note that my college had a couple of different campus chunks separated by a few miles. I lived on the upperclassman residential campus, which was about two miles from the main campus where all of the other student dorms and main buildings are. I felt like he was going to try and find me. He'd go to the main campus first, then maybe give up, since not many people outside know about the separate residential campus. Five or six minutes later, I get another message that says something like, No fun if you don't play along. What building on the campus are you in? His profile says he's now a little over 2,500 feet away, and every time I opened his profile, the distance would decrease. I was fully losing my shit at this point since this guy had the ability to pinpoint my location. So I shut my blinds, turned off my light, and locked my window, the door to my apartment, and my bedroom door. My roommate was also out of town on some kind of retreat, so it was just me. 
He kept sending me messages every minute or so saying things like, I'm gonna find you. Here I come, smiley face, and other supremely creepy shit like that. The distance was down to 310 feet and I was completely losing my mind. And I didn't know what to do, so I just deleted my whole profile. Nothing else happened that night, though I was absolutely terrified he was going to come knocking on my door. Fast forward three days later, I decided to re-download Grindr after doing more research and seeing that you can just adjust the settings so that my exact location is not visible. When I logged in on the first time with my remade profile, I adjusted some of the search filters until the results were specific enough to display Dad for Young's profile, which I promptly blocked. Later that evening, I get a message from someone with the display name, We'll Find You, with the same gross profile picture as Dad for Young, and my stomach sinks. He sent a flurry of messages. You fucked up. Almost got police called on me because of you. Couldn't find you, so I had to go to the other dorms and find someone else. I said I was outside his dorm, and he told me to leave, and he'd call the cops. I'm coming for that sweet virgin asshole. Freaked out, I blocked him again, deleted my profile again, then deleted Grinder completely. I refused to re-download it or any other dating apps for about a year after that, at which point I worked up the courage to try again and have not heard from this nut job since. Thank God. So terrifying old man with a fetish for young, inexperienced guys, please, let's never meet. This happened about 2007 or 2008. One night, me, my friend Jason, and his girlfriend Lisa, and his friend Adam decided to go to Denny's around 11 p.m. or so. We walked in and Jason starts talking to the host when his girlfriend starts talking to these two dudes sitting close to the entrance, eating some midnight breakfast, one of whom was fucking plastered drunk. We see what's up and she tells us that she knows the sober one from back in high school, and they caught up for a second or two. About 20 minutes into our meal, the hammered guy starts making a bit of a commotion, and we notice he is looking at us angrily. Lisa goes up to the friend and asks what's up, to which the guy says that his shit-faced friend thinks that we're laughing at him, and we weren't. He causes a bit more of a ruckus, and the sober guy escorts him out. A few minutes go by, and I notice out of the window that the truck they got into was still there across the lot. So I decided to keep an eye on it. It finally left after about 15 minutes, but only to return on the other side of the lot a few minutes later. I let Jason know, and we keep an eye on it as we exit the diner. No movement. Nobody even in the seat. Now we know something's up. He is obviously ducking down. As we pull out of the lot, we see the lights click on and slowly make the turn to follow the four of us, all in the same car, out of the parking lot. We turn off onto the street and feel the car jolt and a loud bang. It took us a second to realize that this guy rammed us. To give perspective, we are on an empty road in an old Honda Civic being rammed by a guy in a large pickup truck. 
Naturally, we gun it as fast as we can, trying to make as much noise and commotion that we can produce, hoping to catch the attention of a cop. We were running red lights and doing 90 and a 45, all the while this guy is repeatedly ramming and bashing the back and sides of our car. Finally, someone in the back gets an idea. I'm calling Eric. Eric was a longtime childhood friend of my best friend. He was, I guess you could say, well-known in the crime world in our area. I get on the phone and tell Eric what's happening. And he tells me to run from the guy and he will call me when he's at the McDonald's near the area. And for us to head there once he calls. We ride for about another five minutes when I get the call and tell Jason to head to Mickey D's. It took seemingly forever to get there, but I was so relieved to see the big M just around the bend. We took the corner to the lot to see Eric and what seemed to be about 10 to 15 people with him all standing near the entrance. We slam the brakes and hop out of the car as fast as we can, ready to deal with the situation. As soon as I look up, I see Eric toss a four-way tire iron right through this guy's back window. The dude doesn't even pull into the parking lot all the way before pulling out and taking off. We see lights in the distance, and Eric and most of the other people he brought were gone. Like cockroaches to light, they were masters of getting away. The cops pull into the lot as we are waving him to keep going, or else they will lose the guy. But to my surprise, the cop jumps out and yells, Get on the ground with your hands on your head! While he points a gun in our face. After a few confused yelling squabbles, everyone calms down and we tell the cop the whole story of this guy. He tells us that someone inside McDonald's said we had guns. As he's taking our statement and assessing the car damage, he gets a chime on his talk and walk and tells me and Jason to come with him in his SUV. We drive about a mile up the road to a local batting cage parking lot that is in a slightly wooded area and we see the truck sitting in the far end. There's a cop pulling a guy out of the truck as we pull up next to them. He asks us, This the guy? Sure was. They throw him back into the other officer's car, and the other cop took us back to Jason's car where we left and met with Eric at his house after. A few weeks later, we got a call from the department, and they said that this guy was visiting from California, so out-of-state fines, which are likely double. The truck he was ramming us repeatedly with was a friend's who he was staying with, not the sober guy from Denny's. He was over twice the legal limit and fled the scene. Needless to say, this guy was up a shit river covered in nothing but open wounds. He had to pay all of the cosmetic repair plus the engine, which Jason reported as clunks and hums now. So let's not meet. This happened in my fourth year at university. I had moved from abroad on an exchange year and was living in student accommodation in England. The building was an old factory converted to student housing. It had four floors and was square, with a courtyard in the center. Each floor had a connecting corridor that would run from one side of the building to the other. The corridor was then separated into eight self-contained flats of four bedrooms. The separations between the flats were locked fire doors. These doors could only be opened by breaking a fire seal or by having a master key, which would set off an alarm, as experienced in the first few weeks when students were trying to sneak into each other's flats without having to go through the courtyard. 
Each fire door had a see-through window from one flat to the other. It was sometime in spring break of 2005. All the local students had gone home for Easter, but I couldn't afford a plane ticket back to visit my parents. I was alone on my floor, except for a few students on the other aisle of the building who were sharing a flat together. I was actually relishing having the whole flat to myself, without the endless parties and general mess that comes along with shared student accommodation. I actually had time to write my dissertation and maybe grab a decent night's sleep without anyone screaming or switching the corridor lights in the middle of the night. The bedroom doors had big gaps underneath, and the light would always wake you. And as my bedroom was next to the fire door dividing the flats, I could enjoy my flatmates and neighbors' antics. That evening, I had watched a movie on my computer with the lights out, probably Silence of the Lambs or Big Fish, as these were the only two DVDs that I owned at the time. Then I turned off the computer and went to bed. Now remember, the whole floor is empty of students, no lights coming from the corridors or kitchens, no lights in the bedroom, and blackout curtains drawn. My flatmates are all with their families, and there's no noise in the building. I am confident that I have locked the main entrance and my bedroom door, and I do not need to worry about the fire doors as they are locked and alarmed. I feel safe. How wrong I was. In the middle of the night, I wake up and feel a presence in the room. It's hard to describe as I actually cannot see, but on instinct I do not move or make a noise, except for my heart pounding. I hold my breath and wait. Now, I have tinnitus, which is a constant ringing in the ear, so I cannot hear faint noises, but trust me, I didn't need to hear. I actually felt the person in the room move. And I knew, I just knew that they were standing right next to my bed. Fear takes over. I stand up on the bed and scream the loudest and biggest scream I can muster. I'm ready to pounce on this person, who has their back to me as I can now make out from the faint light coming from my tiny torch or phone screen, but they're faster than me. In one jump, they reach the bedroom door, and with the other jump, they're out, through the fire door. I grab my phone on my bedside table and run out of my bedroom, unlock the flat door, and sprint directly to the security office a block away, and I was in my pajamas and bare feet. I talk to the security guard on duty, who doesn't believe me. Through the fire door, you say? But the alarm didn't go off. I still make him come back with me to my flat to check. The fire door is unlocked, and the security guard proceeds to lock it again, then open it with his master key. No alarm sounding. I'll have the engineer come check it in the morning. I also made him check the CCTV cameras, but we couldn't see anything or anybody running out into the courtyard. Go back to bed, love. Must have been a nightmare. I know it wasn't a nightmare. How do you explain the fire door being unlocked? I know I had locked my bedroom door, and if no one exited the building, did it mean that that person was still within the building? From that point on, and until the end of the academic year, I did not sleep without my phone on me, and I pushed my chair against the bedroom door to prevent anyone from opening it. I also learned to love my noisy flatmates. It meant I wasn't alone. I never found out who it was. My flatmates thought that it was a previous student with the double of the flat keys, looking for loots in what they thought would be an empty building. And sometimes they would joke that it was a secret admirer who'd come to observe me in my sleep. We'll never know, and honestly, 
I prefer not to. Let's not meet. To preface this, I want to say last year I spent about 32 days in the woods either scouting, hunting, or fishing. The year before that, I spent about 22 days. This doesn't include my regular hunts and camping adventures, which in the past three years adds up to over 100 days. I've been hunting since I was nine and have spent a lot of time outdoors, in various parts of the U.S. and in Canada. I've seen and heard a lot of strange shit, but this takes the cake. I was in the North Georgia wilderness for seven days scouting for bears, wild hogs, and deer, prepping for a hunting trip later that year. I had hiked in about 10 miles and then went off trail for another three to five miles. Basically, I was out in the middle of nowhere. Since I was alone, I was using a hammock that has a built-in bug net, and I had a rainfly over it. I spent about three days halfway up the mountain looking for a good place to hunt. I saw three to four good-sized bears, about ten hogs, and came across a good-sized deer. On the fourth day, I was going to head down to a small stream that I had marked on my GPS, then set up camp, restock water, and prep for the two-day hike. I could have gone faster, but I wanted to be able to look for any animal signs along the way. As I was approaching this small stream, I noticed a tent, which I was excited to see, as I had been completely alone for a few days, and it's always nice to run into another hiker. Generally, us wilderness folks are pretty down-to-earth. As I got closer to the tent, I noticed that there was a small pack on the ground just outside of it. I figured the person couldn't have been too far from where the camp was, so I set up my camp about 30 yards away, and with about four hours of daylight left, started cooking some dinner. Two hours later, I was starting to wonder where this person was. Given that it was the wilderness and it was more than a day's hike, there wasn't much I could do, but I did hike around the site, making a circle as I went out to look for any signs of struggle in case a bear attack, or maybe they had an injury. I got about a quarter mile from the campsite, walking a circle, but I didn't find anything. As night came, no one showed up. I started a fire in hopes that the person would be able to find where they set up and have some light. Fires burn really bright and are easy to see from very far away. After eating, searching, and hoping that this person was able to make it back, I called it a night. I had a small flask with me and took a couple sips of whiskey, then jumped into my hammock with my pistol and attempted to sleep. I sleep pretty hard. Well, I mean really hard, regardless of where I am. It literally annoys my friends because I can always seem to fall asleep and stay asleep, regardless of where in the world we are. But this night was different. I felt like something was off. I figured it was just me worrying about this person, who by all accounts was completely missing. For the first time in my life, I woke up to the sound of what I thought was footsteps, but not in the sense of footsteps on leaves, but what a heavy-footed person would make walking on an old wood floor. It was extremely loud. I got my gun, grabbed my headlamp, stored in a small compartment above me, and waited to see if it would stop. Right at that moment, it did. Then I saw something that scared the shit out of me. 
On my rainfly, the gleam of a flashlight, faint but there. I shouted, Hello? And right when I did, it sounded like ten people suddenly ran away from me in every direction. I dropped out of my hammock to the ground, frantically turning on my headlamps, shining it all around me. But I, I didn't see shit. My heart was racing pretty bad, but I thought it might have just been the reflection of the moon on the rainfly. Yeah, that's what it was. And those creepy footsteps running away? Probably armadillos or something, even though their eyes shine, and they are pretty easy to spot. Problem was, there was no moon. I'd never seen any armadillos above 2,000 feet. Not to say they don't live up there, I've just never seen one. And for some reason, the campsite I set up was gone. The fire had been put out by water. It was apparent because there was not a damn coal in the thing. I thought for sure it was about 4 a.m., but had only been asleep for about an hour. At this point, I wanted to leave, but hiking out in the wilderness while it's dark is always a bad idea. So I grabbed my flask, took a swig of whiskey, removed my rain fly so I could see out of my hammock and around the area I was in, and tried my hardest to go back to sleep. I was laying down when I saw some light hit the trees above me. It was clear it was coming from downstream, and I got out of my hammock and started yelling, Hey! Y'all need help? No response. Whatever I saw was putting out the light. It had spun around and started heading downstream really fast. At this point, my body pumped through more adrenaline than it had blood, and I was exhausted from all of it. I was finally able to fall asleep and woke up around 7 a.m. When I did, I noticed that my water filter that I had left out was missing. It's a gravity filter, and it hangs on a tree, filtering water down into my main bladder that I put in my backpack. And my water bladder, sitting at the base of the tree, looked like it was cut down from the middle with a knife. They cut down my bear bag, which had food in it, and took some of it. The creepiest part of all of it was that they went through my bag, which was under my hammock while I was sleeping. I checked the bear bag before I went back to sleep on the second night, and it was still there hanging, and my bag under my hammock hadn't been touched. I packed all my shit and hightailed out of there, keeping my pistol close to me and moving as fast as I could. I ended up making the hike back in just under 15 hours. I hiked the trail part in the night because I wasn't about to spend another night out there. I didn't see anyone on my hike out. There were no cars parked at the trailhead, and the DNR said that they had only seen my car there. Since then, I haven't gone out there, without any friends at least. To start off, I'm a 25-year-old stay-at-home mother of two, and I no longer feel safe in my apartment. When we moved in almost three years ago, I put a second lock on our door. Our daughter was only two at the time, so we put it there to keep her in, but now I'm convinced it's helped keep someone out. A few months ago, something very strange happened, and I didn't think too much about it at first, but it slowly made me feel unsafe and very paranoid. Someone has been trying to open our door. The first time it happened, my daughter was not in school yet, and my son was only a few months old. 
My partner works different hours every day, but usually will let me know around the time when he will be home so I can unlock the top lock so he can let himself in with the key. My daughter was four at the time and will usually greet her father at the door when he gets home. This night, it doesn't seem she greeted him, but someone else at the door. I was sitting on the couch with my infant son, and I thought I heard someone try to open the door, but it stopped because it was locked, which is normal. Sometimes my partner will try the door before unlocking. My daughter heard that and ran to the door. For some reason this time, she decided she would unlock the door and open it to greet him. She doesn't normally do that. I hear her open the door and then shut the door. I was about to scold her for opening the door by herself when she came in and told me it wasn't daddy. But I was very thrown off by this. She said it in such a sweet, innocent voice, like it's just another thing, but I kind of got freaked out and I went and locked both the locks on the door and asked her if it was the neighbors. We know our neighbors pretty well. She said no, it was a guy. She didn't really get why I was asking these questions. I told my partner about it, and we told her the importance of never opening the door herself again, and now I keep that top locked. I kind of put it out of my mind and wrote it off as a weird accident. One night around 12.30am, the kids were in bed, and my partner and I were watching some late night TV. We heard someone again try to open the door, but this time they rang the doorbell and lightly knocked. My partner looked out the peephole and saw three men. I told him to absolutely not answer it, and he said they left. I went to the window and looked outside, cautiously because I didn't want to be seen, but I never saw anyone leave, which made me believe that they may have been sitting in the stairwell waiting for us to answer the door. I felt like calling the police, but wasn't completely sure if telling them some people rang my doorbell and tried to open the door would really be something that they would even care about, so I didn't. I started to become a bit more paranoid, and I honestly felt a little targeted. I'm sure that sounds silly, but we lived there for three years, and only in the last few months has this been happening. So about two to three weeks ago, my partner had another late night, and this time it was almost 3 a.m., and we heard a sound. Now, our daughter is now five, and sometimes will have nightmares and come out to us. When she does, she will usually jump off her loft bed and run to her door. That night, we heard the sound of what we thought was our daughter waking up and running to her door, so my partner opened her door. He then looked at me strangely, and right when that happened, there was a giant thud at the door and another running sound. We realized then that it was someone running on the stairs outside. My partner looked through the peephole and saw no one, and I looked outside and saw no one as well. That night I took my kids into our room and locked the bedroom door and pushed something heavy against the front door and after having a panic attack where I thought I might actually need medical attention, I silently cried myself to sleep. We got a hold of the landlord the next morning and were told she would try to get someone to patrol the area. Since then, I do not open my door for anyone other than the people I know, and nothing really has happened until today, which is why I'm posting this now. I had just gotten out of the shower, 
My daughter is at school, my partner is at work, and my son was in his pack and play, and I was trying to get dried off when I hear a knocking at the door. I'm not expecting anyone, so I'm not going to answer it. I then hear the door try to open, and I I don't really know what to do. I'm just sitting there naked, but so tired of this. So I put on a robe and grabbed a knife just in case, but when I looked at the peephole, there was no one there. I'm looking into moving. I cannot handle being here, and I feel very unsafe and violated that someone keeps trying to open our door, especially with my kids here. I need to vent. Thanks for listening. And to the person or people who keep trying to get into our apartment, let's not meet. This is long because a lot of small things done in just the right way create a scary situation. I also made a lot of poor, naive decisions along the way. If you're one of the being uncomfortable doesn't make a good story types, you will find this underwhelming. When I was in college, I would frequently party with my boyfriend, Cody, and his roommates. One of the roommates, Drew, was from a small town nearby and had friends up from there often. I became close with most of these people and assumed that they would be pretty cool as they were tight with Drew. One weekend, Drew's friend, Tim, comes up to a party. We all start out in the dorms pre-gaming together, but by the time we're ready to head off to the party off campus, some people are throwing up. So it's just going to be Tim and I headed across the street to meet up with some more people from Drew's town. I've liked all the people I've met so far, and I'm down to party. Tim and I have drank together with the group a few times, and it's always a good but crazy time. Tim decides he's had enough uppers, and he can still drive, so we get in the car and head over. On the way, Tim gets lost and has to call for directions. This is a small residential area, full of intersections, and we're turning at every single one. It becomes really hard to keep track of where we are. It's dark, and I'm pretty tipsy. However, we finally arrive at the party, and I decide to leave my shoes in Tim's car because we have to take them off inside, but I don't want them to get stolen. As soon as we get in, it starts to get weird. There's almost no one there, and the house is obviously being repaired. Also, someone's sister is supposedly hosting, but there are no girls except me. There are two other guys playing a drinking game with cards, and we join them. Then Tim starts saying weird things. At first I thought he was being awkwardly helpful by explaining we know each other through my boyfriend, as in, I have one so don't hit on me. But it quickly turns into a weird pissing contest with Cody who isn't even around. Tim is telling any embarrassing tidbit about Cody that he can. From stories of out drinking with him to how often he talks about his mother. It's super awkward for me, and I try to steer the conversation away, but Tim keeps fitting jabs in. It's extra strange because we've only hung out with Tim three or four times before this. Finally, the group decides to smoke some pot, and the party moves into the kitchen where we can smoke. I'm feeling uncomfortable and have slowly stopped drinking to sober up. They offer me a hit, but I have no intention of taking it. 
I should mention, the way we were smoking was all individual hits, so the piece would have to be repacked for each person. The first person was packed before we came into the kitchen. Anyway, I say I don't want to smoke, and they all start peer pressuring me. Since I normally do smoke, I start to relent, but I stipulate that I only want a smaller hit and someone should take the big one that was waiting. They really want me to take it for some reason, and when I start to get annoyed about it, they abruptly change the subject away from smoking at all and start arguing about some unrelated common interests they all have, then move the party back into the living room. I'm starting to feel really weird about the whole situation. I tell Tim that I want to head back soon, and he insists he's way too drunk to drive by now. I'm pretty insistent, and I'm going to walk back. I ask him for the address so I can Google map how to get home, but he only gives me the street name. He also doesn't want to give me his keys so I can get my shoes, but he's not ready to go to the car to get them. I finally decide to just walk home barefoot and leave. My phone dies soon after, mapping the way home and texting my boyfriend that I'm on the way. I'm pretty lost, but I start traveling in the general direction that I need to go. This isn't a good neighborhood, and I'm walking pretty quickly. A few blocks later, I notice there's a couple of guys also going my way, trailing a few blocks back. I assume they're just heading to the campus, but change route anyway, so we would be traveling on parallel streets. Basically, I cut over a block, but a few blocks later, they're behind me again. Still a ways off, but it doesn't make sense why they would travel that way. I decide I really don't like it and start doing zigzag blocks so they aren't traveling behind me, but they keep ending up a block or so behind me. I finally make it to somewhere that I can catch a campus bus. There's a crowd waiting and somehow, once I reach it, the guys telling me disappear. When I get back to the dorms, everyone is freaking out. Apparently my zigzagging made the walk take a lot longer than it should have. When Cody couldn't reach me because my phone was dead, he called Tim assuming we would be traveling together. Tim told Cody that he dropped me off back at the campus soon after we had left the party. So everyone became concerned I wasn't home and started looking for me. They were actually about to call campus security. When we asked him about it the next day, Tim just shrugged it off and said that he was drunk and didn't remember talking to Cody. I think it was something more sinister. Why else would he tell them that he dropped me off? Was it him that was tailing me? What were they trying to get me to smoke? The guys still hang out with Tim, but I don't. So let's not meet again. Thanks for listening to this week's Lost Stories episode of Let's Not Meet, a true horror podcast. Don't forget, if you're a patron, to stick around for some brand new stories after the music. This week you have heard A Christian Pamphlet Turns Dark by a listener that asked to remain anonymous. The Uber Driver Who Wasn't an Uber Driver by another author that asked to remain anonymous. Lost Puppy by Nachos Are Life. He Called Himself Doctor by The White Wolf. The Legend of Old Foamy by... Colbster Jr. Tracked by Grinder Stalker by Feeble Gut. An encounter that has closure 
by Itsu Ra, Stranger in My Bedroom by Snillsick, The Woods Have Lights by Mr. Wonder Bread, I Don't Feel Safe in My Apartment Anymore by Anya, and finally, He Told Everyone He Drove Me Home by Scarlet Feather. All of the stories you've heard this week were narrated and produced with the permission of their respective authors. Let's Not Meet a True Horror Podcast is not associated with Reddit or any other message boards online. As always, if you have a story to share, send it to letsnotmeetstories at gmail.com. And don't forget, if you want to join the Patreon and get access to this extended ad-free version of Let's Not Meet that all the patrons are listening to right now, head over to patreon.com forward slash let's not meet podcast. There are hours and hours of stories for you to listen there, as well as exclusive merchandise and other goodies. Anyway, I'll see you guys next week for a brand new episode of Let's Not Meet, a true horror podcast. Please, for me, stay safe out there. was in college, I went out with a group of friends. There were only two girls in the group, and I was one of them. There were about 12